0: Let me begin with an illustration from Greek mythology. Tantalus was the son of Zeus, and Zeus was the god of thunder, and he was married to Pluto, who was a mortal, and so Tantalus was a human who had a divine father and a mortal mother. And one day Zeus invited Tantalus up to Mount Olympus Olympus, to share in a meal with the other gods, and Tantalus misbehaved being a young human, and what he did was steal the food, the ambrosia, and the drink, the nectar of the gods, with the intention of taking it back to the human race and let them know some of the secrets of the gods. And as punishment, Zeus took his son down into the underworld and plunged him into the Tartarus River up to his neck as his punishment for his crime. And he placed above him a head full with, uh, a branch full with fruit. And every time Tantalus reached up to get the fruit, the branch would move away from his hands. And every time he put his mouth down into the water to get a drink, the water would move away from his neck and come back up as he put his head up. So Tantalus' punishment was to remain stuck in the midst of the Tartarus River forever, tantalized. That's where we get that word as a result of his own sinful desires, unable to be fulfilled by them. And so what I want to consider this morning is how many people in this world are stuck in their own river of life up to their necks, where they are plagued by their own sinful desires, by the difficulties that have come from the consequences of their own bad choices. How many people in this world are ensnared and tempted by desires that can only result in their pain and suffering? How many people in this world are stuck in a river of life without any hope of ever escaping their dreadful condition by their own efforts? Where they live in the darkness of their own lack of spiritual understanding. Where they cannot see the smallest shred of light in the gospel because of the darkness of their hearts, where they constantly and willfully turn away from what is right and good, where their affections are in total disorder and chaos, where they cannot stop themselves from loving the darkness, where their imaginations and their wants are filled with foolish notions and even at times madness. And folks, we only need to look at ourselves... To see that we too were no different than them before we were saved by the grace of Christ. Wretched in ourselves and now complete only by the grace of God. So there are people all around us at various stages of recognizing their own spiritual hunger and truth, for truth. Some people want nothing to do with the truth now. Others are afraid of the truth. Others mock the truth. Some people never want to have the name Jesus come out of their mouth. Others mock it in ignorance. Others doubt that there is such a thing as absolute truth. But in reality, there are many who are only inches away from getting that first bit of spiritual water and spiritual food into their mouths where they can satisfy their spiritual hunger and thirst for truth. And I want us to consider this morning how we might become better prepared to pursue the spiritually hungry and thirsty by examining these two verses in John chapter 7. But first I want to remind us of the difficulty of the task. I I don't think we really grasp the difficulty of the task before us. So if you'll turn for a moment to Acts chapter 26. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you could open it and read it. Paul is talking to Agrippa, and he's explaining to him what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And he says in verse 15, as he was confronted by Jesus, he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Let me remind you first that Scripture is a propositional truth. It's, it's an objective truth. Its truthfulness can be weighed out objectively and isn't remotely impacted by how we feel about it. In other words, it isn't true if we feel it's true. It's true or it's not true. And the fact of the Incarnation is not somehow different from secular facts. If God really became man in Jesus Christ, then his entrance into the human world is open to examination by non-Christians and Christians alike. And the honest doubter will have compelling evidence in support of Christ's claims. So Christianity is a challenge to everyone to once and for all either commit to or deny what it claims to be true. Nowhere does it offer some alternative or middle ground. I had a friend write me an email and he said, Rick, I'm telling you the Bible is bunk. And I said, well, it's only bunk if it's not true. If it's true, it's not bunk. So the task we have as Christians has to do with our putting forth, as graciously as possible, the proposition, the fact, the truth, the principle, that the Bible reveals truth, capital T, that is over against all other truth claims, which are necessarily utterly counterfeit and false if what the Bible reveals to be truth is true. It simply doesn't work for us to allow people to pretend to ignore the challenges the Bible makes to everyone's perception of reality. This is the seriousness of the task. So in that first section there in verse 16, he calls Paul a minister, and that's literally an under rower. He's the guy that's at the bottom of the boat doing the rowing. He's doing the work that Jesus has called him to do. And in verse 17, it says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So Jesus tells Paul he's going to rescue him. He's going to... Choose him out of. He's going to deliver him from the Jewish people and the Gentiles that he's sending him to even before he tells him what he wants him to tell them. To let Paul know that this is a message that he's going to need to get rescued from. It's not going to go over well. It's not going to win him lots of friends. Folks, here's the reality. Nobody gets rescued for telling people God loves them unconditionally. Nobody needs to get rescued from a message that says, God cannot love you any more than he loves you right now, as I heard a pastor say one day. Jesus rescues people from a message that offends unbelievers. So Jesus was letting him know that he was going to be worn out by the opposition of men and devils because of the message he was preaching. So the issue is, how do we tell them this message with as little offense as possible? How do we tell them in a way that's alluring and challenging and inviting? And then he tells us what the message is and why it's offensive. He says in verse 18, I'm sending you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the main clause there is, I'm going to send you to open their eyes. And then he has two clauses that follow that, that show us what opening their eyes looks like. It looks like turning them from darkness to light. And I would assume that means... From the darkness of the ignorance about God to the worship of the true God. And from the power of the authority of Satan to the power of the authority of God. This is what the Bible does. The Bible teaches that everyone is in this condition, whether they think they are or not. That's the thing that's before us, getting them to be convinced of the truth of the reality of what Scripture teaches. So their true status before the message is delivered and believed is that their eyes are not currently open to spiritual truth. They are in darkness and not in light. This is a little milder than Ephesians 5, 8, where Paul says that they were darkness, not in it, but they were darkness. And they're under the power of, or the authority of Satan. Satan. So the goal of the message is to awaken people to show them the necessity of believing in Jesus. I want you to note that there's no place in the New Testament where Paul sort of flashes his apostle badge and says, I get to say the truth because I'm an apostle, no matter how you feel about it. Nowhere in the New Testament does Paul ever explicitly tell them this little section here that Jesus revealed to him. He never explicitly says to anyone that their eyes are not currently open to spiritual truth. He doesn't ever explicitly say that they are in darkness and not in the light. He doesn't explicitly ever say they are under the power or the authority of Satan. That is the message, but this is the difficulty. How do we share such a truth gently and patiently, as he says in 2 Timothy 2? In humility correcting those who place themselves in opposition to the truth so that God will grant them repentance and so that they may know the truth which they do not now know and come to their senses which they are not now in and escape the snare of the devil. How then shall we deal with others about this truth in a way that is both meek and serious? So let's look at John chapter 7 and we'll kind of carry on there. Let me make some observations about the text. This is a great, great section of Scripture. It takes place during the week of the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm going to turn there too. You notice in verse 2, now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And then verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught, and then in verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this is also about six months before the crucifixion. Secondly, if you look at the, the chapter, you'll see that there is a genuine baffled response among the people as to who Jesus is. There's all kinds of misconceptions and contradictions, confusions, misrepresentations, and philosophical conflicts about who Jesus is. And just like here in chapter 7, some people might believe the truth that we were sharing with them if they first only had all of their questions about Jesus and the Bible and God and evolution answered first in a way that suited their ideals. But I want you to notice that something Jesus does in this chapter He's not dealing with any of their intellectual questions or misconceptions, contradictions or confusion, misrepresentations. These he sort of answers offhandedly. What he does do is he simply declares himself to be the source of all their spiritual satisfaction without them having to first understand everything that could be known about who he is. Jesus says simply, Come to me when you are spiritually thirsty and start drinking. I am the source of your spiritual water. Now think about this for a second. We don't need to know where water came from in order to know that when our throats are parched and we put water in our mouth, we are refreshed. We don't need to know what the chemical properties are of water to know that when we're thirsty, it satisfies us. We don't need to know the different complex states that water takes and assumes at different temperatures to know that it quenches our thirst. And so Jesus says simply, offhandedly, come to me when you are spiritually thirsty and start drinking. Well, I want to look at the bigger picture because if we look at the bigger picture of John chapter 7, we'll see uh, more clearly why Jesus uses these two verses in 37 and 38 as his call to come to him. So the big picture is that this is during the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's also called the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Jehovah, or the Feast of Booths. This isn't a random illustration he uses in 37 and 38. He's not reaching back to John chapter 4 with the woman at the well and thinking, oh, that was a good illustration, I'll just keep using the water illustration. This is extremely deliberate, what he's doing. So chronologically, from the Feast of Tabernacles, it began in October 22nd, and from that time forward was the time of the rainy season. And the Jews had a notion that at the Feast of Tabernacles, God makes a judgment that determines how abundant their next year's crops will be and how much water He will use to bless that abundance. So the Feast of Tabernacles was also called the Feast of -gathering. It's the time when they gather the harvests in. It's a time of the rainy season. It's a time of great celebration. The Jews used to say that if you had never seen that day, you had no idea what real joy and rejoicing was. Here is a whole people rejoicing in God's providence for what he had done for them. They were thanking him for his provisions, acknowledging his providence. During this time in the temple, believe it or not, the book of Ecclesiastes was read. And the reason is because the main message in Ecclesiastes is that the way that you go about Thanking a providential God is to enjoy what He has provided for you. So the priest would recite from Isaiah twelve, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. F. F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, said The ceremony of water pouring was well attested in connection to the Feast of Tabernacles in the two centuries prior to A.D. 70. This ceremony was intended to acknowledge God's goodness in sending rain and to ensure a plentiful supply for the following season, and it was enacted at dawn for the first seven days of the festival. A procession led by a priest went down to the fountain of Siloam, where a golden pitcher was filled with water and was returned to the temple as the morning sacrifice was being offered. The water was then poured into a funnel at the west side of the altar, and the temple choir began to sing the great halal, Psalms 113 to 118, about Israel's track back back up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Well, it was also called the Feast of Booths, and that was a reenactment of the wilderness wanderings, and the people lived in makeshift booths all around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at this time was filled with activity. Every Jew remembered the Old Testament stories of water in Exodus 14 to 17. In Exodus 14, the Lord separates the, the Red Sea. Israel walks through on dry land, dry land. As Pharaoh's army comes after him, he closes it up. In chapter 15, there's the song of celebrating the Lord's victory in drowning all of Egypt's army. And then at the end of that chapter is the... Story of Marah, of bitterness, where the people cried out from thirst, and the Lord showed Moses a tree which he threw in the water to sweeten it. And then it says they came to Elim, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the waters. And in verse 17, the people were complaining that God is trying to kill them and their livestock with thirst, and Moses was instructed to strike the rock of Horeb with the same rod that he used to strike the river when it opened. But here's the clincher. Jesus says these two verses on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the eighth and final day, the most sacred day of the celebration. It was the most public possible place that Jesus could be in all of Jerusalem, where he could be seen and heard. There were more people present that day than any other time in all of Jerusalem. Jesus knows his pending death is right around the corner, and his time is running out. And Jerusalem is full of people who are there watching all this ritual about the history of Israel's thirsting and all the water God miraculously provided for them in their wandering, all the celebration for rain and thanking God for his provision and providing rain for the harvest. And all these activities and rituals and symbolism are going on all around them the entire week and everywhere in the streets for everyone to see and remember. And the text says that Jesus had just been standing there, watching the procession of the people from their booths to the temple. And then suddenly they hear this clear, loud, assured voice crying out above all the racket and hysteria. If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. The language is really clear. When Christ says that he's commanding the hearer to come to him. Hearing these words, I would have imagined that the hearer would have immediately started wondering a whole bunch of things. Well, how do I go about drinking from him? Why does he think I should be thirsty? Should I pay any attention to this guy? Well, This is an amazing statement, and and let me try to give you a, a sort of a colloquial feel for how I understand what Christ was asking the hearer to believe and think about. There were clearly, with six months left of his ministry, some people who were following Jesus around who knew him and had believed him and had been listening to his truths for a while, and they started to digest the truth. But of course, believing in Jesus is far removed from thirsting for truth. People can experience spiritual thirst but never end up believing on Christ. And I think this is what Jesus was saying in so many words. There's no other place to go if you find yourselves in the throes of spiritual thirst but to me, if you desire to satisfy that thirst. It's in your own best interest to keep coming to me, because anywhere else you go won't satisfy you if indeed you're seeking spiritual satisfaction in the truth. The person who comes to me in genuine faith, he's going to want to always keep drinking from me because he realizes that only the truth can quench your thirst, and I am the truth. And once that truth of who I am has lodged itself into your heart as a confirmed reality, the fullness of that truth will begin to grow in a way that will impact the lives of every person you come in contact with who is generally finding themselves spiritually thirsting. That river becomes truth and spiritual life itself flowing out of your heart to quench the thirst of everyone you come in contact with that becomes spiritually thirsty. Well, I think there's four steps of salvation here that are in these two verses, and I'd like to sort of explore those with you. Just to make sure I I keep you uh, abreast of how difficult the situation is, what our task is in doing this, and how we need to go about doing it. Richard Baxter, a famous Puritan preacher, said this, Alas, how few know how to deal with an ignorant, worldly man for his conversion. To get within him and win upon him. To suit our speech to his condition and his temper. To choose the most proper subjects and follow them with a holy mixture of seriousness and terror and love and meekness. An evangelical allurement. Oh, who is fit for such a thing? All these difficulties in ourselves should awaken us to holy resolution, preparation, and diligence. So I want to consider how we might awaken ourselves to diligently pursuing the spiritually hungry and thirsty. So let's look at that first step. Longing and thirsting for spiritual truth. So the first requirement then is what? What do you got to be? Thirsty. You got to be thirsty, right? But what makes someone thirsty? What, what does longing and thirsting look like? I think the call for us to remember is the call is to come and to drink isn't to the believer, but to the thirsty. Jesus said similar things to this at other times in his ministry, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the good Bible student is going to naturally say, well, heavy laden with what? And the answer is heavy laden with sin. Because Jesus is the one who forgives sin. You don't go to Jesus for any other reason than because you know that God has sent him to be our atonement for sin. A genuine seeker seeks forgiveness of sins. That's where the thirst begins. And this longing and thirsting, I think, is probably just a, a vague dissatisfaction with the world. I think you, you, you're you struggling to pursue things that really don't pay off for you, and you keep struggling with them, and they don't pay off, and you keep struggling, and they, they don't pay off, and finally you start to go, wait a second, I, I, I got to have more than what I'm getting here. There's an awareness that you aren't spiritually satisfied by the things of the world. And that comes essentially at the same time that there's a recognition of sin in your life. But you know, you can't rip the skin off the snake, can you? The snake doesn't show up two weeks early at the two rocks he's going to slither through to get his skin off. He comes right at the moment to do that. You can't make someone thirsty and hungry for truth. Now, I learned that the hard way. I had a friend in San when I became a believer. His name was Mel. And I knew Mel was a really into evolution and I was gonna I was gonna make him drink some water, baby. <laughs> it's it's actually pretty sad. And so I was standing in Harrison hardware store and I there were some people in front of me and I was standing there waiting in line and he comes up behind me and there were people coming up behind him and you know, I just started talking to him about Jesus. I just started talking about evolution's false, creation's true and I could tell in about ten seconds he was just not interested anymore in talking about that one bit. But you know what? And then stop me. Now, talk about adjusting your speech to his temper and condition. That never crossed my mind. Never crossed my mind. And so, after I check out, I'm waiting for him, and I'm still talking to him about evolution and creation, and we're walking out together, and it's in San Diego Valley, it's 110 degrees, and I, we're walking up to his car, and I'm walking right next to him. I'm just not stopping, I'm just keeping going. And he gets in his car, the windows are rolled down, it's 110 degrees. He starts driving away, and I'm walking by him, and as he's rolling the windows up. I don't think that's a good idea, actually. Um, because I drowned my friend. See, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't suiting anything to his condition or temper. It, it never crossed my mind to do that. And we have to be really alert and aware of where people are. And when they don't want to hear anymore, we need to shut it off. Fast forward 20 years, I'm I'm at my mother's funeral in Maine, and I'm staying with some friends of the family. And they had a son my age who lived in Vermont, but they had a younger son who was the same age as my brother. His name was Steve. And Steve and I were sitting there talking after the funeral service, and he he looks at me and says, Rick, you know, I know it was really sad for you to be in your mother's service today, but i got to tell you, I I really like being in church. I just like the ritual and the service and talking about the Bible, and I thought, oh, maybe he's thirsty. So I start talking to him about, you know, how Jesus loves us and he came to forgive us of our sins and he wants us to come to him when we're spiritually thirsty and, you know, I'm kind of going on pretty good about it and I realize in about three or four minutes he's kind of getting kind of squirmy, you know. And I said, Steve, what's going on? He goes, well, Rick, you know, I don't understand this but I feel really comfortable talking to you but I really don't want to talk about this anymore. (laughs) So that's when it's time to stop and then somebody else picks up The time, don't they? Somebody else takes care of it from then. So we need to be alert and and take the opportunity, but be alert as to where they are and their responses to what we're doing. The next idea there is the idea of coming to Christ. He says, come unto me. And he wants us to embrace his person. Notice he doesn't say, come unto Christianity. Hmm. A.W. Pink said, If a poor sinner is convicted of his pollution and desires cleansing, if he's weighed down with the awful burden of conscious guilt and desires pardon, if he is fully aware of his weakness and impotency and longs for strength and deliverance, if he's filled with fears and distrust and craves for peace and rest, then, says Christ, let him come unto me. Let's make sure that in our apologetics, we don't allow room for any kind of moral evaluation of unbelievers. We really don't know what their state is. We haven't experienced what they've experienced. Because the Christian is a sinner before the Ten Commandments, just like the unbeliever is. God is the judge of morality, not us. And we we make moral judgments about someone else who is an unbeliever. We're not witnessing to Christ but we're witnessing to our own self-righteousness. And we know from the book of Romans that we don't have any righteousness. We have righteousness that's imputed to us, declared upon us, but that doesn't make us righteous. We're not infused with righteousness after that declaration. That comes in sanctification as we progress as Christians. It's not our job to divide the world into sinners and Christians without helping unbelievers to see that our righteousness is only imputed righteousness. Let me share with you a letter that I got from a friend about how difficult the task really is and how offensive we can be as Christians. We were talking about Christianity and religion. and This is what he emailed me. He said, thanks for your letter, Rick. On a one-to-one basis, you have not offended me. However, Christians as a group certainly have offended me. Their constant bombardments of, quote-unquote, the only way, and their self-righteous, self-appointed authority about what is right in life completely ignores my experience. Their only interest in anything I've learned is to be able to rebut and to interject their interpretation of the Bible, which, by the way, is capital letters, no authority whatsoever for me. I'm sick of their dogma, insensitivity, history of destruction and death, self-righteous, pious, biased, rude, aggressive, and unwanted attempts to make me see the light all because they love me. Rick, this is systemic behavior seen throughout our country. I could go on and on about how and why I find Christianity insidious, destructive, and obnoxious, but I think I've said enough. I am only trying to explain to you why I'm sick of the whole subject. Folks. Well, you happen to be right about that. But but here's the thing. Here's his experience. His experience is following Guru Maharaji, that 16-year-old kid. Remember Guru Maharaji? You, you got the knowledge and you, you went into meditation and some nectar dripped down the back of your throat and that's how you knew that the presence of God was within you. Okay? I just want you to see what we're up against in the typical response to the gospel. I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting his position is the fault of Christians. I'm not suggesting that. But I want you to note the lack of commentary in this letter about who Jesus is. We have to get people to see who Jesus is. That is the challenge for us, folks. We don't let them see Christ through our Christianity. Jesus didn't say, come unto doctrine about me, come unto dogma about me, come unto decrees about me, come unto creeds about me, come unto teaching about me. He said, come unto me. It's true that Christ is the source of all of our doctrine and decrees and creeds. He's the source of all of our theology. But but we have to have them see who Christ is through that. He didn't say, Jesus didn't say, come unto a realization about your lack of self-esteem and I'm going to fix it for you. He didn't say, come unto the religious rights, political perspectives on abortion, and once you get that straightened out, you can come to me and drink. Right? What do we do to prevent people from coming to Christ when they want their sins forgiven? I want to make sure that, that we don't have any temptation to be salvation screeners. MacArthur said, John MacArthur said, God has called us to spread his gospel, not to screen candidates. To assume someone is a good candidate for salvation is to deny that salvation is completely initiated by God alone and wholly undeserved by men. And to assume that someone is a poor candidate for salvation is based purely on our pride. Did any of us really have anything to offer Jesus when we came? If God could save you and me, he can save anyone. This is the liberating lens through which we should view a world quietly living each day on death row. So if you're tempted to be a salvation screener, just I I would beg you to look a little more closely at your own heart. And here's why. Because the the issue is that the world has, has a pharisaical view of salvation that God grades on a curve. And the issue is not whether or not you're spiritually thirsty or who you should go to to become satisfied, but whether or not you are good enough to get into heaven. That's the way the world sees it. Good people get in, bad ones don't, and frankly, we suffer from the same view, folks, a lot of times. And curiously, I find this to be very curious, Everybody always seems to think that they're in the good group. Everybody thinks they're in the good group. And truthfully, if you were a Christian, that means that you saw the truth that you were not in the good group. You see, the reality is, when you look through the Bible, that sinners flocked to Jesus. I mean, they were busting through to touch his garments so they could heal diseases. And I just want to make sure that we're not doing anything to hinder in any way screening people. So here's what we need to keep before them, I would say. A bare minimum knowledge of the gospel is that you are a sinner, and we all are, and God atones for sin. That's the bottom line. Of course, once you start talking to people about that, we talked about this in our life group. Once we started talking about that, then another question comes up, and that's got to be answered. And then another clarification has to happen, and that's got to be answered. And pretty soon... There's no bare minimum anymore. You're just talking, you're clarifying all the time what the gospel is. And we need to keep two things before them in the gospel. That there is no salvific merit that's going to get them into heaven without Christ. None. None are righteous. No one gets in without the imputed righteousness of Christ that God gives based on faith. No one. And if you do embrace Christ, nothing that you have ever done in the past was ever bad enough to keep you out of a relationship with God. Nothing. We need to watch our biases. I had, a, I had a friend at work when I was working down in Eugene. He was a Hispanic guy. You know, I don't get embarrassed too much, but I was embarrassed listening to him talk to me. I mean, it was filthy day in and day out and I was getting really hard against him. And I started thinking one day, well, what if he comes to me and he says, well, Rick, you know, tell me about Jesus. Well, I'm not going to say, oh, dude, your mouth is filthy. I I can't stand talking to you or being around you. I, I can't tell you about Jesus. Let's take it a little farther. If you've lived in Oregon most of your life, you probably know who Ted Bundy was. He raped and murdered young women in several states. He was connected to at least 36 murders, but some thought he had committed 100 or more. He was executed in Florida on the electric chair in 1989. You recall probably, if you're about my age, Jim Dobson having an interview with him before he was electrocuted. And what did he say? He said, Jim, I, I tell you, I have found Christ. He has shown me his mercy. I am saved. And you know... That half the country went, whoa, dude, that, that, that didn't happen. He, he's, he's way, way too nasty. God, God's not going to extend his grace that far. What about Wesley Allen Dodd? Before Wesley Allen Dodd was executed by hanging, the convicted serial child killer was given the customary opportunity to say his last words before the court. And he said, I was wrong earlier when I said there was no hope or no peace. There is hope, there is peace. I have found both in the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to eyewitnesses, the father of the two boys that Dodd had murdered hissed quietly as Dodd invoked the name of Jesus, his Savior. After all, Dodd had viciously murdered, abused, and mutilated three young boys. And you know what he was thinking, don't you? Well, he's definitely not good enough. He can't possibly be good enough to get into heaven. God is not that gracious. And like us, the father was thinking, is he good enough to be saved? No. We're all thinking the same thing. He's not good enough. And in honesty, we have to admit to the same kind of disbelief, folks, that God would actually turn someone, someone's heart as wicked as Wesley Allen Dodd to find forgiveness in his son. And actually, in reality, it's much harder for nice people to find salvation than for the bad ones. A look at Jesus' ministry shows that people had the same problem when Christ was here on earth that we have. And that problem is he just seemed to attract really awful people. So welcome to Jesus, the king of the bad group, folks. Be careful not to hinder anyone from coming to Christ because of your biases. Everyone has an opportunity when they come to Christ. This next idea here, this believing and drinking, it's, it's fitting that this story would find itself in John's gospel. Because one thing that John is hammering the entire time he's writing his gospel is you, you have to believe in Jesus. That there's no alternative. You have to believe in Jesus. And he told us that right after he told us how much God loves the world. We all know 316, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So please don't think for a minute, well, the reason he didn't condemn the world is because he loves the world. No. The reason he didn't condemn the world, Jesus didn't come in to condemn the world, was because... The world was already condemned. Sin condemns you. But that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus says, once you believe then come and start drinking. And I think this believing and drinking is, is a huge picture. I think it means receiving truth into your heart and into your life and your mind. It means repenting. It means looking at where you were and seeing it was the wrong place because now you understand what truth is and you're repenting from what you didn't know. It's, it's going to change your entire worldview. Your entire perspective of the world is different now if you acknowledge that God is sovereign in the world. You need to admit your finiteness, that you don't have all the answers. It's really based on believing and trusting in God. You need to grasp who the Messiah is, what, what God was doing for us in the person of Jesus. It, it, brings you into a reconciled relationship. It brings you back into the friendship of, of God and being on peaceful, good terms with Him. Believing and drinking means beholding the God-man, the, the only unique individual in the history of the world. It means affirming His beauty and His worth. It means believing He is the source of God's mercy to people, the only source of God's mercy to people. Trust that his words are not corrupt, that they are life itself. And as unpleasant as the message is, when they hear it, it's the truth. That's the challenge for us. How do we do it in a way that's not offensive? Well, that last step there is the idea of finding satisfaction in the gospel. So we had longing and thirsting, coming to Christ, believing and drinking. And now we're looking at understanding and being satisfied in the gospel. The phrase, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water, is made to him who has done the drinking already. Someone who has come to the river and taken the water in full stream. The gospel causes you to begin to challenge your reality as to how things really are now. Because you you were incorrect when you were looking at things before And after a while, it begins to change your perspective of the world. In practical terms, that might look like this. It causes you to seriously consider forgiving those who have wronged you. It makes you rethink the disappointments that you had for years, possibly, about your bad choices. It makes you content with your lot in life right now. Things are different. Things are changed. You've been reconciled. You believe a truth that you didn't believe before. It makes you reevaluate your need to fix the world the way you thought it should be. It'll cause you to rearrange your perspective of when you were the victim in a really bad situation that had you looking at life the wrong way for years. But more than anything, the gospel will cause you to become confident in God's mercy and grace right now in everyday life. That's what, that's what it means to get the understanding and to, and to live within the gospel. There's real satisfaction that gets demonstrated in your life that comes with knowing the truth. There's a peace that overrides the circumstances of your past. And that is what Ted Bundy said he was acknowledging. And that's what Wesley Allen Dodd was acknowledging, and that's what Carla Faye Tucker was acknowledging. If you don't know who Carla Faye Tucker was, she was the first woman executed in Texas in 154 years. Her crime was that one night she murdered two people with a pickaxe, one viciously. She went to prison, and there she got thirsty for the truth, and she spent the remaining 14 years of her life in prison, Folks, leading people to the waters of life, I'm talking in droves. I mean, they were coming by the hundreds. And I remember the Hank Hanegraaff debates about whether or not it was better to set her free, even though she was on death row. The spirit's impact on the prison population through her was so obviously powerful. And now it was debated whether or not it could possibly be considered to be right, or good, to execute her in light of the great good that had come from her being reconciled to God. Where there had been hatred and bitterness and anger and rage in her heart, there was now a a sweet, beautiful, caring, thoughtful woman And nobody could understand it. None of the prison officials could understand what was happening. So the question then is, what do you do with someone who winds up in prison because of the horrible choice they made to murder two people one night in their bitterness and anger and rage? What do you do with someone that becomes that reconciled to God, whose whole perspective on life has obviously been radically changed for the better because they found Christ? You know, there's there's something else that goes along with satisfaction in the gospel. Do you think Carla Faye had any regrets that day of her execution? My guess is that she didn't, because that's what this understanding and being satisfied in the gospel ultimately leads to. With that drinking into the gospel truths and believing in Christ, ultimately comes a realization that the promised mercy and grace of God outweighs the deepest regret you could ever possibly imagine bringing. Without Christ, we are all on death row. Folks, I would just urge you to be sensitive, to be diligent, to be alluring, to be caring, to be thoughtful, to be careful with the gospel. When God saved me, he didn't save a nice guy. Only when I realize that will I begin to grasp how great God's mercy is. And if it seems strange to you that grace would extend itself to rescue child killers and murderers and drug traffickers, then we really haven't begun to fathom how great God's ocean of mercy is with an example like Carla Faye Tucker. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious and merciful. Help us to see where people are and how we might show them how gracious and merciful you are father bless you this morning unto us more clearly and more carefully in the songs that we sing as we lift up your name and praise you in christ's name amen